0: morning, once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24. Well, for the last few weeks, we have been studying Matthew, chapter 24, which contains a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples, revealing to them the signs that would precede his second coming to the earth to establish the kingdom of God. And as we have said in verses 4 through 14, the Lord gives his disciples a quick overview of the last seven years on earth before his return. He divides this seven year period into two halves. The first three and a half years he refers to in verses 4 to 8 as the beginning of sorrows, which is better translated the beginning of birth pains. And the second three and a half years he mentions in verses 9 to 14 and later calls in verse 21. Great tribulation, or in other words, we can liken it to the severe pains of a woman in hard labor. Now, as we've already pointed out, and I happen to be pre trib in my eschatology, what does that mean? I believe the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation period begins. I believe the church is going to be evacuated out of here, raptured, and then the Antichrist will make his appearance on the world scene. He will come into a world full of chaos. Millions and millions of people from all over the world have disappeared add to that, no doubt, the economic turmoil and maybe even the military conflicts going on, this man's going to show up at a time when the world needs someone to lead them into the future. He will have supernatural charisma, supernatural abilities. He will be, you know, he will be the leader that they've always envisioned would lead mankind into a new age. And initially, it will look like he is doing that very thing. He will bring the world into a time of Peace and prosperity—it will not be long-lived, though, because Paul tells us of this time in 1 Thessalonians 5 that when the people of this, I'm paraphrasing—when the people of this world are finally lulled into this pseudo-utopian age, when they say peace and safety, then Paul said, God's judgment is going to be poured out like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And that's why he uses this analogy of a woman in labor. The pains start out uh, less intense and less frequent and get more intense and more frequent uh, the closer you get to the child's birth. That's how it's going to be in the tribulation period. Uh, Beginning of the seven years, uh, God's wrath will not be as severe uh, as it will be towards the end. As the world moves from the beginning of the tribulation period into the second half, especially the judgment and suffering uh, are going to become more acute. God's wrath will be more intense until finally it all gives birth to the kingdom as Jesus returns to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, that's an overview of the, fir- of the whole seven years, verses 4 to 14. Starting in verse 15 through verse 28, Jesus zeroes in on those last three and a half years of the seven and amplifies this period to give us a greater insight into what this period of time is going to entail, especially for the Jewish people who will be living at that time, this period of great tribulation. He wants us to know more about that, and it's important to understand something. It's important to note that the prediction of a future time of tribulation directed at the Jewish people didn't originate with Jesus in the Olivet Discourse here in Matthew 24. It was predicted in numerous places in the Old Testament through the Old Testament prophets. Almost all of them had something to say about this period of time. We know that Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, just to name a few, prophesied about a coming time of persecution for the Jewish people when Israel would be the focus of great persecution and the Jews would be massacred in great numbers by someone they considered a friend and even Messiah, and only a remnant would escape, and they would escape because the true Messiah would come and deliver them. I won't have you turn to it, but let me just read you one passage out of Jeremiah 30, verses 5 to 9. Talking about this, For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor? All their faces turned pale. He's talking about this tribulation period where the Jewish people are being severely persecuted. He said, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass that in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from your neck, speaking of the Antichrist, and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Speaking of how Messiah will come at one point, deliver his people from the persecution of the Antichrist and establish a kingdom reigning on the throne of David as the prophecies went on to specify. And so again, verses 4 to 14, the Lord gives us a quick overview of the final seven years before his return, a period that the New Testament calls the tribulation period. And then starting in verse 15, running through verse 28, He goes back and focuses on the last three and a half years of the seven to amplify them, to give us greater details of what's coming for the Jewish people primarily. Now, this section of amplification starts in verse 15, where the Lord said, Therefore, when you see... Now, of course, the you is not those disciples. He was talking about the Jewish people in general. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Let me stop. The phrase abomination of desolation is a term that comes out of the prophecy that God gave to Daniel as he recorded in chapters 9, 11, and 12 of the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9, God told Daniel. Now, this morning we're going to be a little technical because we're in a section that we have to explain this. All right. Try to stay with me. And if you have any questions, come up afterwards, we can talk. But in Daniel chapter nine, God told Daniel that he was setting aside, listen, 490 years to deal with the nation of Israel and accomplish six things. And I'm just going to read them to you. I will not have time to study them. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. All of those things will culminate human history as we know it and lead up to the establishing of the Millennial Kingdom. With regard, though, to this 490-year period that God told Daniel he was going to set aside to deal with the nation of Israel, and remember, a prophetic year is 360 days, not 365. Every once in a while, the Jews added an extra month to balance the calendar but theirs was a 360-day year. And so when God talks about 490 years, he's talking about 490 years of 360 days. And he told Daniel that 483 of these years, or, try to bear with me, 173,880 days would be contiguous. They would begin when the command would go forth to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That command went forth to Nehemiah from Artaxerxes on March 14, 445 B.C. If you use that as your starting point, and you add to that date 173,880 days, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah and King. Of course, the leaders rejected him, as we've already seen. If they would have embraced him and received him, he would have established the kingdom at that time. But they rejected him. And when they rejected him, guys, something very important happened you need to understand. When they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, God's prophetic time clock for the nation of Israel stopped with one seven-year period left to go. Remember again, God told Daniel he had set aside 490 years where he would be dealing with the nation of Israel. 483 of those years would be contiguous leading up to Messiah's coming, which they were leading up to his first coming, of course. And he would have established the kingdom if the nation had received him, but they rejected him. And when Israel rejected her Messiah on Palm Sunday of 32 AD, that left one seven-year period yet fulfilled. God has still got a seven-year period that he has set aside to deal with Israel. Now the question is, when will this final seven-year period take place? When is it going to begin? Well, the prophecy in Daniel 9 tells us. In the prophecy of Daniel 9, God said that a leader was going to arise on the world scene. He calls him the prince who is to come in verse 26 of Daniel 9. This leader is going to broker a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. This peace treaty will include, among other things, a provision for Israel's protection. This guy's going to look like the biggest friend the Jews have ever seen. And this peace treaty will have, in part, a provision that will protect the Jews from their enemies, but also will allow them to build their temple on the Temple Mount, and this will allow them to begin again to sacrifice the sacrifices to God. Now, I've been to Israel several times, And if you were to go to Jerusalem, you you could visit what's called the Temple Institute. And in the Temple Institute, you will see that they have already prepared almost everything they need for this new temple. They are training young men for the priesthood, especially yeshivas or schools. They've got the priestly garments made. They've got most of the implements made for the sacrificial system and all to begin. They're just waiting for the, they've even got the schematic drawn up. They're just waiting for the building. And the Antichrist will allow them to rebuild, uh, to build again their temple during this first three and a half years of the seven. The temple will be completed, and at one point, the sacrificial system will begin again. We know the temple has to be rebuilt, and the sacrificial system instituted again, because at the midpoint, I'll talk about this more in a moment, the Antichrist is going to stop the sacrificial system and do some things I want to just have you hang on to it for a second. But what I want you to see, though, because this man is so pro-Israeli, so pro-Jewish, the Jewish people are going to believe that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. Of course, we know that he will be a false Christ. In fact, he will be the Antichrist. What I want you to see is that when Israel signs this treaty with the Antichrist, it's going to officially begin the final seven-year period that God said... He would set aside to deal with Israel. In other words, when Israel signs this treaty with the Antichrist, whom they think is their true Christ, God's prophetic time clock for the nation of Israel will begin to tick again. Of course, the seven year period again will lead up to Christ's return. And we've already pointed out in this study, it's called the tribulation period and is the subject of Matthew chapter 24. Now, getting back to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15. He said, therefore, when this future Jewish generation sees the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And of course, that's directed primarily at the Jewish people who will be around at this time. What is this abomination of desolation that Jesus said Daniel spoke of and the Jewish people were to understand? Well, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, let me just read it to you. It says, Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many, with the Jewish people, for one week. Now in the Hebrew, the word translated week could mean a week of days or a week of years, depending on the context. Here it's obvious. It's speaking of a week of years. So let me paraphrase. The Antichrist, is going to confirm a covenant with Israel for one seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven-year period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, which means the temple will be rebuilt during the first three and a half years, and they will begin to offer sacrifices again to the Lord before the midpoint of that last seven-year period. Because by the midpoint, the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple and causes the sacrifices to the true God to stop. What are you going to do then? I'll show you in a minute. And he goes on to say, And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. This is something that is repeated in the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 11, verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 11. Let me read those to you. Daniel eleven, thirty-one, 31. Speaking of the Antichrist. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of of desolation. Daniel 12, 11, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days until the coming of Messiah. Listen, guys, the phrase abomination of desolation describes an abomination set up in the Holy of Holies of the temple that completely desecrates it, rendering it completely useless for the worship of God any longer. Now, almost all commentators see the references in Daniel 9 11, and 12 to this leader who desecrates the temple as a reference to Antiochus IV, the Syrian leader, king, who ruled Palestine from 175 to 165 BC. He took the title to himself Theos Epiphanes, which means the manifest God. It's a humble man. But his enemies nicknamed him Epimenes, which means the madman or the insane one. The apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees record the history of this period, this period of Antiochus, Epiphanes, and his persecution of the Jewish people. We read how that he, he slaughtered many thousands of Jewish men, sold many of their wives and children into slavery, and completely tried to obliterate the Jewish religion. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig, which is the most unclean of all animals, by sacrificing a pig on the brazen altar of sacrifice, and then forcing the Jewish priest to eat the flesh of this roasted pig. He then set up in the holy of holies of the temple an idol of Zeus, the pagan deity he fancied himself as manifesting. That horrific abomination set up in the holiest place in the temple the place where the God of the universe, the God of Israel alone was to occupy, well, it completely desecrated the temple, rendering it useless for the worship of God. That abomination of desolation was what launched the Maccabean revolt, where Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, who were sons of the Jewish priest, they led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, and it was a total work of God. Because this band of rebels went up against the whole Syrian army and they defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, recaptured the temple, re cleansed it, and rededicated it in December of 164 BC. This became a feast which the Jewish people celebrate in December every year, a feast they call Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication. Now, as I said, almost all scholars universally see in the prophecy of Daniel a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. But many only see a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes in these verses. They think that this whole thing was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes. The problem is Antiochus Epiphanes died in 163 B.C., roughly 200 years before Jesus gave this discourse in Matthew 24. And in this discourse, read verse 15 again with me. Therefore, Jesus said, when you what? When you see. The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Obviously, the Lord here is speaking of a future leader. A leader that's coming that Antiochus Epiphanes was only a foreshadowing of. But he's telling us that there is coming another leader who's going to do something similar to what Antiochus did. He is going to come in the future. He is going to place a desecration in a future holy of holies in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And he's going to desolate The temple, rendering it useless for the worship of God. Who is he? I think we all know. It's the Antichrist. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. Because Paul makes reference to this very thing. The abomination of desolation that Jesus prophesied that was coming still in the future. Paul elaborates on it in 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 3. Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. Unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Speaking of the Antichrist now, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. When will the Antichrist put his image into the Holy of Holies and the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem? Well, the prophecies of Daniel 9 and chapter 12 and Revelation 11 tells us it will happen right at the midpoint of the final seven-year tribulation period. Prophetic scholars have speculated for a long time as to why the Antichrist would break his covenant with the Jews after three and a half years. Remember now, he comes on the scene. First thing he does is he signs a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. But then right at the midpoint, he breaks it. Why? Well, I'll tell you why I think he does. But before I tell you, we have to look at the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Yes, the temple is being rebuilt, but some other things are happening too. Now, we've already talked about this. So if you've heard me say this, bear with me. Remember now, and I believe again, that rapture takes place before the tribulation period begins. All right, we're out of here, right? When the rapture happens, listen to me. Every true believer in Jesus Christ is going to be taken off the earth. Now, you're going to have a lot of apostate Christians. In fact, some churches won't even miss a member the Sunday after the rapture. Okay? They'll be in tr- all, all accounted for. All right? It's my prayer this place is empty. So if you're not a Christian, get with the program. We'll talk to you about that at the end. But here... When the rapture happens, God is going to evacuate off this earth every true believer in Jesus Christ, which means there is no true believer left to be a witness for him on the earth. God never leaves himself without a witness. So the first thing he does is he sends two witnesses who will have a ministry in the first three and a half years of the seven, and millions will be converted through their ministry. In fact, we read in Revelation chapter 7, that in part they're going to be used by the Holy Spirit to convert 144,000 Jewish evangelists. I I just think of Paul the Apostles. And these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to spread out through the world. They're going to save millions of people who will then in turn share the gospel with others, and millions upon millions of people are going to get saved during the tribulation period. Of course, the Antichrist will slaughter many of them, but many will escape and be there when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. Turn to Revelation 11. I want to read this to you. And let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. God said, "I will give power to my two witnesses." The Greek is interesting. It's very emphatic. The two witnesses of mine, indicating these two men have been used by God in the past as witnesses. Now I believe personally, and I don't have time to explain why. You got to go online and listen to our Revelation 11 study. I believe personally these two witnesses are going to be Moses and Elijah. I believe that for several reasons, but not the least of which is what they're able to do on the earth. So I'm going to give power to my two witnesses. Church is gone. God needs a witness to be to share the truth. I'm going to give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. That's three and a half years prophetically. Clothed in what? Sackcloth. Whatever you see in the Old Testament, Whenever a prophet was called by God to go to the nation and tell them to repent for their sins because judgment was coming, they always wore sackcloth. The fact that these two guys are going to be wearing sackcloth tells us what their ministry is going to be all about. It's not going to be warm and fuzzy and telling people what they want to hear. It's going to be you're, you're a wicked people. You need to repent. God's judgment is coming. Well, guess what? The world doesn't like to be told that they're wicked. People in the world don't like to be told that they're sinning, that they have to repent and make changes. No, they want to keep on doing what they want to do. So guess what? These two guys are going to be hated. And what does the world usually do when it hates the people of God? It often kills them, right? And they're going to try to kill these two guys, but guess what? God's not going to allow them to do that. In fact, how they try to kill these two guys will come on the people that try to kill them, and they themselves will be killed. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all kinds of plagues as often as they desire. Hey, that sounds like Moses and Elijah. They have power to to call down fire from heaven. Elijah did that. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Elijah did that. They have the power to strike the earth with all kinds of plagues. That's Moses. Turn water to blood. That's Moses. And of course, as I said, the world is going to hate these two men with a demonic passion. But they cannot kill them, so they're forced to listen to their message now at one point revelation 11 verse 7 when they finish their testimony now they're done doing what god has called them to do the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them the beast is a reference to the antichrist who has now listen solidified his power he doesn't need religion anymore organized religion, especially Judaism. See, when he first comes into power, he needs to build a coalition of supporters. I I remember reading about the rise of the Third Reich under uh, Hitler, and how initially when Hitler came on the scene, he appeared to be, he was very friendly to the churches of Germany. In fact, he passed himself off as a Christian. A lot of clergy thought he was Christian. Until he solidified his power, then he didn't need them anymore. He outlawed any church that was not a Reich church, a church sponsored by him where he was looked at as the leader. The Antichrist would do the same thing. Initially, he comes on the scene, looks like a man of peace. He's working with people. He's very uh, inclusive, a very uh, uh, all about you know working together and so on, very supportive of various religions in the world and so on, until we reach the, the midpoint of the last seven years. He has now solidified. his He doesn't need religion anymore. You can read Revelation 17. At one point, uh, the woman is riding the beast. The woman is the world church. But at one point, the beast turns on her and tears her to pieces. He doesn't need her anymore. Now the Antichrist establishes his own church with himself as God. All right? He can't do that, though, as long as these two witnesses are on the scene. This brings us back to the question as to why the Antichrist would break his covenant with the Jews after only three and a half years. Let me tell you what I believe. I believe it has to do with the assassination attempt made on his life, which Zechariah records in chapter 11, verse 7. I'll, I'll let you read it. Simply stated, it means that somebody's going to try to take this guy out. Not everyone's going to love him, by the way. Okay, Most people will. He's going to have his enemies. And somebody's going to try to take this guy out. Revelation 13, 3 tells us that he will appear to be dead, but will miraculously resurrect, quote-unquote. I don't think the guy's really dead. The world thinks he's dead. You know, Satan's a deceiver. He's a counterfeiter. He hasn't got the power of life and death, though. Only God is that. But he can fool people pretty well. And so he fools the people of the world into thinking the Antichrist has been killed. But then suddenly he resurrects. Well, when the Antichrist resurrects, the people of the world who thought this guy was something already now begins to worship him as a god at that point guys satan enters into him and he begins to show his true colors i believe revelation eleven seven coincides with revelation 13 verses 1 to 4 that the antichrist after this so-called or this pseudo resurrection where the devil enters into him after that he is able to kill these two witnesses now the world God rises from the dead. He must be a god. He's able to kill these two guys. Everyone hates. Nobody's been able to kill them. He kills them. Now the world is crazy with Antichrist worship, who they think he's the real deal. And I believe, guys, that after the Antichrist slaughters the two witnesses, he goes directly to the temple and sets up his image in the Holy of Holies. It's a, for lack of a better term, it's some kind of an image that he gives life to. Now, Next time we meet, I'm going to just read to you something that's going on right now that I think coincides with that very event, all right? And I think you'll find it interesting. We'll also touch on it when we get to uh, Genesis chapter 6 from just a slightly different perspective. But I think you'll find it fascinating, all right? But after he slaughters the two witnesses, he goes directly to the temple and sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God. Now, Let's read verse 15 again. Therefore, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world, until this time no nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And one more time, guys, let me remind you that Matthew 24 in Matthew 24, Jesus is not addressing Christians, which means the church is not in view. The events Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24 are directed at the Jews who will be living during this future time of great tribulation where the Antichrist will be persecuting the Jewish people, a time that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble, indicating Israel is in view here. The church is gone. church is raptured. This is Jewish territory. This whole chapter is focusing on the persecution leveled at the Jewish people primarily. Now, of course, there will be other tribulation believers. People will get saved during this time. They will be persecuted also. But Israel is the focus of the Antichrist persecution. He hates them because the devil always has hated Israel for being the instrument through which Messiah came to the world. But if you doubt that, look at the context here. He talks about Judea okay, verse 16. He talks about the Sabbath, verse 20. He talks about the prophecies of Daniel concerning the Jewish people, In verse 15. This is all about Israel's persecution. Verse 21 tells us that when the Jews see the Antichrist, set up his image in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, that is going to mark, listen, that is going to mark the beginning of the greatest wave of persecution the Jewish people have ever seen or ever will see. In fact, we read in Zechariah chapter 13 that two-thirds of all the Jewish people on the face of the earth are going to be wiped out. Some estimate that there are 15 million Jews in the world today. That means 10 million will be killed by the Antichrist. The rest will flee. And we will explain that in a moment. But two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed under the Antichrist reign of terror. Now, let me just say this. This is why these events we're talking about were not fulfilled, listen, in the first century as many people try to say they were. They read this in Matthew 24 and say, look, all this was fulfilled in the first century. Some of it was, in a sense. Much of it looked forward to a future time. But we know that two thirds of the Jewish people were not killed in the first century under any leader. This is talking about a time yet future. Verse 22, Jesus said, And unless those days of great tribulation were shortened, no flesh would be saved. It doesn't mean saved from hell, it means saved alive from physical death. Look, you got two things going on. You got the Antichrist, who's got a massive army, we read from Revelation. And he is targeting the Jews, but anybody who opposes him and his kingdom. And he's pulling out all the big guns. He's got uh, all the finest advanced weaponry that money can buy at his disposal. And he's turning it on. And you've got, you talk about nuclear, uh, chemical, and biological weapons pointed at his enemies. But on top of that, God is pouring out his judgment upon this world. And Jesus said, that God graciously in his sovereignty is going to shorten this period to three and a half years because if God let it go on any farther, everybody in the face of the earth would be wiped out. So unless those days were shortened, nobody would survive. Verse 22, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, people read that and go, wait a minute. The elect, that's us, right? You say the Christians aren't even in view here. Aren't we the elect? Isn't this talking about Christians? No. No. We'll talk about that more when we get to verse 31. I'll show you why it's not. The elect is not, you know, yes, we are called the elect. We're not the only ones called the elect, though, in Scripture. What are the Jews going to do at this point? Well, Jesus said, when you see the Antichrist go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and set up his image of the Holy of Holies, run for your life. Don't even go back into the house to get a bag packed. Run. Flee, verse 16, to the what? To the mountains. And I believe, guys, this is a reference to the rock city of Petra in the mountains in the area of Jordan, a place that God has prepared for his people to run to and hide. Revelation tells us God will protect his people that make it down there to this, this fortified city, this stronghold in the mountains. God will protect them as they flee from the Antichrist persecution. I'll read you one scripture, Zechariah chapter fourteen, verse five. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and the saints with you. That's a reference to the Jews will flee to this area. And again, it's Petra, I believe where they will be protected for three and a half years from the Antichrist and then delivered when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom. What is this rock city of Petra? Well, I'll give you a little challenge this week. Go online, Google the city of Petra. You'll get some amazing pictures of this city. In fact, if you're a Indiana Jones fan, the third movie in the series, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, remember that final scene where there, you see them, On horseback, going through this canyon, and it opens up, and you see this city carved into the rock. That's Petra. That's Petra. At one time, it housed upwards of two hundred thousand people. It was a it was a tremendous stronghold. Why? Because to get to it, you have to pass through this canyon, and the canyon narrows to about eight feet at certain points. Very easy to defend against enemies. They would they would be up on the rocks in their little uh, houses, which were actually caves that they had dug into the rock where they lived pouring hot oil down on the armies of their enemies you just couldn't get to these people now it's interesting the area has been pretty much left vacant and if you go there today and you ask the uh, Jordanian guides why don't don't anyone live here today why it's just waiting for the Jews to take up residence why is it vacated why are there nobody are there no Muslims living here they will tell you it's haunted The jinns, the genies, roamed the place at night. The Muslims won't go near it to live. Isn't that interesting? God's provided housing for his people. And there was a ministry, I forgot the name of them, reading this account in the Bible, how that the Jews would at one point flee to the rock city of Petra, where they would be protected from the Antichrist for three and a half years. They began to spend thousands of dollars having new testaments translated into hebrew thousands of new testaments they brought down to petra and they began to hide in every crack every cave every place they could find a spot to put a new testament so that when the jewish people flee to petra they will find these new testaments written in hebrew and hopefully read them and get saved and i believe they will i believe they will so god has set the stage now Next time, God willing, I'm going to share with you uh, some I think some interesting little tidbits about this. Uh, just some of the technology that we see that's already in place. And and also some other things as we work our way through now, Matthew 24. But I'll tell you what, uh, I'm just so grateful that for us who are Christians, I believe, we are going to be evacuated off this earth before God's wrath is poured out. Now, That doesn't mean that we do nothing. It means we draw close to God and are used by Him, allow Him to use us in any way He can before the rapture happens. It's not that we say, oh, great, I'm going to be taken out of here and come on, Lord, get me and, uh, you know, I'm going to kick back until He comes and just enjoy myself. No, it's a time to work. It's a time to draw close to the Lord, a time to get serious about Jesus Christ, A time to say to him, Lord, here am I. Use me. Whatever time is left, I want to be used by you to touch people for you. And then, Lord, when we're out of here, I know you're going to have uh, your spirit move and save millions of people who will also be a light during the tribulation period. So we're living in exciting times, guys. If you're a Christian. If you're an unbeliever, not so much. But we can fix that today. You may have walked in here as an unbeliever, you can walk out of here as a child of the living God, knowing that he has promised you he will not punish the righteous with the wicked. And so we, before he pours his punishment out upon this Christ-rejecting world, we are out of here. We are out of here. So exciting times. Keep looking up. As Paul said in Romans 13, it's high time. For the people of God to awaken out of sleep, our salvation is near now than when we first believed. So it's not a time to get comfortable, not a time to get complacent, not a time to doze off. Let's be watching for our Lord's coming. He's coming soon. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, which tells us what's going to happen, that your people are not in darkness. And we see the signs everywhere, Lord, that your coming is near, even at the door. And so we ask, Lord, for grace, to spend whatever time is left, Lord, living for you all out, full on, that, Lord, you would give us grace to be witnesses, to be holy, that the world might see we're different, that we belong to you, and would ask us to tell them about you. And so, Lord, we praise you. We pray for our loved ones who don't know you. The time is growing short. We ask that you would touch them, Lord, and save them. Open their eyes. And Lord, we thank you that soon you're going to come and you're going to fix this mess. Your kingdom is going to be a kingdom of true peace and holiness, righteousness. No more political graft, no more corruption. But Lord Jesus, you will reign over this earth in complete righteousness. And we thank you, Lord. We are looking forward to being a part of that kingdom. So Lord, we thank you. We ask you now to Go before us and bless our week with health and safety and productivity for us and our families. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.